This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book and it is number 10 of the studies in the epistle to the Colossians. In our study last time, we were noticing the emphasis that was placed upon the relationship of that which was by sovereign grace a gift and that which was in some way associated with our own response. Let me just mention that, although not go into it again, uh, so that we can go on with our study and link this up. In chapter 1, verse 22, we read these words, In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And the more you penetrate into those words, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable, you realize the depth and the scope. For the word unblameable is the word that deals with the character of a sacrifice and a priest in the Old Testament without blemish. And the word unreprovable means in the law court of God, no one can lay anything to your charge. I'm quoting Romans the 8th chapter where that word comes. Well, you say, surely that's unimprovable. There's nothing more to be said about it. But before this chapter ends, Paul has something to say about it. Verse 28, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Seems extraordinary, doesn't it? We're going to be presented, if ever this is perfect, it must be in the body of his flesh through death. And yet he warns us, and uh, we've dealt with it before, that this is our response. The word perfect, in uh, many ways, is, is an often a misunderstood word. This particular word has reference to running and touching the tape at the end, but in its English form, remember, it's made of two parts, P-E-R and F-A-C-T, not merely F-E-C-T. That is to say, the Apostle says, now make that which is yours in Christ a fact in your experience. Perfect. So he even says in Corinthians, what fellowship hath light with darkness and all that, and says, now, perfecting holiness. You say, how can you perfect holiness? You can't improve it, no. But you can take that which is yours in Christ and make it a fact in your experience. Cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Perfecting holiness. Well, now from that he leads on. He says in chapter 2, For I would that ye know, you knew, what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Here's the conflict, and here's the issue. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The uh, revised text shows us a certain amount of hesitancy about the closing words of verse 2. And the one that I feel is perhaps nearest to what the Apostle wrote was this. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, then a dash. Christ. The rest of it drops out. The mystery of God Christ. And in this capacity, he's the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge. 
Now, of course, we should have to have a long study and we shouldn't get very far in attempting to say whether these words should or should not stand. But whether the words of the Father and of God remain or come out, the one thing is that Christ is the focus. Well, now let's look at this because here we are dealing with that which belongs to our peace. He desires that we should be given an assurance. He should desire, he desires that we should know where this treasure of wisdom is to be found. And yet the first thing that he deals with is a comforted heart. Now, we must give credit that God knows what he's doing. And I suppose before ever we start on this investigation, there must be some element of peace in our own makeup. As though the doctor's given us a little examination and he says, now before you start on this investigation, before you start on this search, uh, you want a little toning up. It's going to make a little demand upon you and we want to be sure that you won't break down in the circumstances. A comforted heart. I'll just give you two Old Testament passages to sort of um, give a little idea of the thought here. Hosea chapter 10. Hosea, of course, being one of what we call the minor prophets. The first one immediately after Daniel. And in chapter 10, verse 2, he says these words. Their heart is divided. And I believe the original says, they have a heart and a heart. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found forty. A divided heart. And in Psalm 57, just to get one more from another angle, Psalm 57, verse 7, is the other side. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, awake up my glory, awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early and so on. So we've got a heart that's divided, which leads us astray. A heart that's fixed, that is settled, that has got some of these problems already solved. They're ready to listen and to listen with profit. The next thing I think that perhaps we do well to remember is that our English word, comfort, gives us a little bit more the meaning if we divide it into two parts. We've used the word comfort so much for crooning to a baby and giving it something to suck to stop it from crying that we've lost the meaning. This isn't the meaning of the word comfort. Not in the English language is not the meaning of the word comfort. C-O-M is the preposition soon, together with, like uh, Charlton come hardy, C-U-M in our language. And the word fort doesn't need any explanation, it means to fortify, to strengthen. And the word comfort should never be used in the English version as though it meant consolation. It always carries with it something that stiffens you, strengthens you. Not merely consoles you and pats you off. Now the word is made up of two parts in the Greek language, para, 
and Kalio. And then you've got the word paraclete, the comforter. And the word paracalio means to call someone to your aid and your side whenever you're in a predicament or need help. And there you have again the wisdom and the graciousness of God. He doesn't say, whatever you want, it's all there provided. Always says it's provided. But I'm not going to make you so that you can't stand at all and you can't walk at all. But whenever you want help, call and I'm there. I mean, if you have a little child under your care, and you always put your hand under its arms and help it to walk across the floor, well, it'll never walk properly. Or the few bumps it gets when it's a little mite, it's all a part of it. But occasionally it gets in such a predicament that it has to yell for mother and there's the paraclete and there's the comforting, strengthening, getting over it, walking against it. So there we have this emphasis on the word comfort. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, you get the same word translated a little differently, which will, I think will help you to see that we've got to remember that it's got that meaning. Preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now that's the word comfort. But it's a very uncomfortable thing sometimes to be exhorted along certain lines. But that's the meaning of the word. To exhort. So now, first of all, we need to have this encouraged and fortified heart. I read Proverbs, chapter part of chapter 3. I wanted to read a part of Proverbs, chapter 2. And I wanted to read a part of chapter 4. But I can't do it all, of course, and it would take too long. But here is a passage in Proverbs 4, 23. Keep thy heart with all diligence. The margin, keep thy heart above all thy keeping. That is to say, this is far more important than anything else in this world. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's the citadel. If that's taken by the enemy, the rest goes. If that's held by you, the rest may fall, but you will not. So the heart, you see, is here uh, very important. And then in chapter 2 of Proverbs, which I didn't read, it speaks about wisdom and knowledge and understanding. In verse 4, If thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasure. And of course you know in the Old Testament there are references to hidden treasure. And even the parable uh, in Matthew 13, a certain man, he bought a field and he found treasure. Or rather, it's the other way around, he found treasure. And he put it all back and covered it up and said nothing to anybody, went and bought the field because of the treasure in it. And of course, in those early days, that would be often done. Uh, today, you might remind me, oh, we put our money in a bank. Yes, and so did your forefathers, and he put it in the bank at the bottom of his garden. The bank! What do you call it a bank for? It's only just the earth. That's where they hid their money once, and now they take you to another one, a more glorified bank. That's all. So, hidden treasure was a well-known feature in biblical days, and even in our own land. Sometimes the plough suddenly turns up a little pot with coins in it, 
that were put there by somebody during the Roman occupation. Hidden, not put into a bank as we understand it, but hidden in the bank at the end of their field for safety. Then circumstances overcame them and it was lost. Now we come back to Colossians 2 to notice the next step. That their hearts might be comforted. That's one, or it's strengthened. The next thing is being knit together. Being knit together. As we said, a divided heart is uncertain in all its ways. And in all these things, here is a preparation. Knit together. We get this similar word in Ephesians 4.16. It's the very essence of the unity that we have and which we keep. Chapter 4.16 From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. Fitly joined together. And in chapter 2 of the same epistle in whom all the building, verse 21, fitly framed together. A building that isn't fitly framed is a danger. In chapter 2, this is a digression, but it may as we've opened it. The first thing to know, notice about the building is in verse 20, it's got a good foundation. And the next thing to look about it is, is it fitly framed together? Now there are some people who know so much that they will never spend a few pounds to get somebody who knows what he's doing to survey the house before they put their money down. They have a look at it and the agent he assures them, oh yes, 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 and they buy it. Then they, to their horror, they discover that something's wrong with the foundation or something's wrong with the structure. In either case, it can be very grievous. But in this case, the foundation is sure and it's fitly framed together. Well now, all such growth, all such progress, all such building must have that character. And coming back to Colossians, being knit together. Uh, in um, chapter 2, verse 19, there's an echo of this in connection with the one body. And not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Knit together is associated with increase, growth. So there's something to remember that unity, true unity, is so vital to all progress. Now in the um, Old Testament, this word translated knit together, or perhaps I'll give it to you in case you want to look it up, sum, S-U-M, bibazo, B-I-B-A-Z-O, sum bibazo, it occurs ten times and it never means to knit together. It always means to teach. You say, this is a strange idea. What's this? What is this word? Well, let's have a look, shall we? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 12, we'll just get a sample. Exodus chapter 4, verse 12, and Exodus chapter 4, verse 15, this word occurs in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Exodus 4, first of all, verse 12. Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt, what thou shalt say. 
And again, in verse 15, And thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you what ye shall do. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14, just for another one. There's, as I say, there are ten of them, but time will not permit us to uh, go right through the list, but you might as well get another to balance this. Isaiah 40, verse 14. With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Well, there's two passages. To teach. Well, now we come to the New Testament and see how it's used, because in the New Testament it does mean to knit together like members of a body, but it's also translated in the same way of teaching. So we may get a little light on teaching as well as other things. Acts, the ninth chapter, verse 22. Acts, the ninth chapter, verse 22. Now we're dealing with the Apostle Paul's ministry. And the very earliest of his ministry, for he was only converted in chapter 9. And in verse 22 we read, But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. Now you see where we're getting. Proving is knitting together the Old Testament prophecy with the New Testament fulfilment. That's teaching, friends. That's true teaching. Getting your basis, as it were, right, and then going on to prove your argument. So there we've got it, proving. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, verse 10. Acts of the Apostles 16, verse 10. And after he had seen the vision, of course you know this is the beginning of this ministry. They were forbidden to preach in Asia, verse 6. The Spirit suffered them not to go to to Bithynia, verse 7. So they went straight on to Troas, not knowing what to do. They, They were rather perplexed because they'd been sent on a ministry and they were stopped. And then, Paul had a vision. He saw a man of Macedonia who was praying, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavoured to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering. That's this word knit together. They knit together. They said, Ah, that's the answer. That vision you received, Paul, and our response is obvious. So that's again, you see the meaning of the word to knit together. And it is translated instruct and so on. So we get sometimes double words. The word means to articulate. Articulate. Uh, Now, uh, supposing I said articulate, and then I say to you, what do I mean? Well, you may say to speak distinctly. Oh no, I said listen. That's not making any sign. That, That one part of the joints anyhow is still functioning. Articulating, see? But if you'd have said, oh, the joints in your body. No, I should say. If you articulate properly, you'll finish the word before you go on to the next one because I don't know whether you've ever heard in a mission singing one hymn and one line says, for whom our Lord did die. L-O-R-D-I-D-I-D-I-D-I. That's all I say. 
They don't finish the word, see? That's not, uh, not articulation. So here we've got a double word. We have in our punctuation marks, commas, full stops, colons. Oh, colon, you said. I heard somebody had to go to the hospital about their colon. Oh, well, the co- word colon simply means a large member of your body. And a semicolon is a smaller member of a sentence. See? So we've got words that have to do double justice. And it's wise sometimes to remember them because they help, they throw a little light. Now we come back again to Colossians 2. We've got a heart that's knit together and overcomforted, and we've got it articulating. We've got it so that it's, it's able to put two and two together and really make four. There is a, a real understanding, wise unity, and it's in love. That's another little thing that we perhaps slip over quickly. But don't take it for granted. In love. Always oh, speaking the truth. In love. Oh, what a difficulty. You see, some of us are so constituted, we say, let's speak the truth and shame the devil. Well, the one who said that was Harry Hotspur. He was a Hotspur. But you see, you may, you may do damage to some sensitive conscience when you speak the truth and shame the devil and that's the end of it. You see? But on the other hand, you get so meek and mild over it that what you say is not worth listening to. Now, the Apostle has put together in one passage a very, very difficult thing. He says, Do all to the glory of God. Give none offence. Now, you see, some of us could do all to the glory of God and ride roughshod over everybody. The other lot says, Oh, we mustn't give any offence to anybody and we never stand up for anything. But it's the two together that are knit together. It's the two together that is the only consistent practice that God will really honour. Do all to the glory of God and yet remember the sensitiveness of the weaker conscience and so the the element that will do that is love. True love. Love won't allow the wickedness or the evil to get away with it but it will temper it because it will, as the Apostle says, you which are, are spiritual restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering your own selves, lest you also be tempted. So we are making slow progress, but I hope progress to this end. The heart comforted, knit together in love, now unto, it's reached something. Or watch this little word unto, it's the goal. The others are the way towards it. Here's the goal, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding Riches. Riches. Riches of understanding. In this verse 3, we are told these are hidden treasures. So will you glimpse at the chart for a moment, just to get this put in its right place? First of all, you notice the simple analysis which starts with wisdom and walk. That's chapter 1, verse 9. Wisdom and walk Godward. That was his prayer. But at the other end we have chapter 4 verse 5 Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. So there's a wisdom which has God first of all in view and there's a wisdom which has your neighbour who's watching your steps and learning through you. Walking in both ways. Wisdom. Godward and manward. And then we have in chapter 128 Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. And in chapter 3.16, the balance, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and warning one another. That's the same word translated admonishing. 
It's a pity they've got admonishing in one verse and warning in the other. Of course, it makes sense. But it takes away a little bit the fact that he's repeating himself, emphasizing this. So there's warning and teaching, teaching and warning. And then we have, in chapter 2, 3, the treasury of wisdom. I don't know whether you possess a book on the English language called the Thesaurus. If you haven't, well, and you see it, buy it. It's a treasure. That's what the word means. A treasury. Thesaurus. And in Christ is this treasury of wisdom. Now, over against that, we have in chapter 2.23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom. Oh, what a contrast between a superficial show and between the real thing. Now, evidently, wisdom is vital, isn't it? Because at least we must give credit to the wicked one to know what he was out to do. And one of the very first things he did was to so exhibit the forbidden in the eyes of Eve in the garden, and when she saw that it would make one wise. Ah, that's worth something. That's worth a venture. Wise. So we have two forms of wisdom keeping pace with one another right through the Bible. The one is the wisdom of this world that comes to naught, which actually, which actually was there activating those who put Christ on the cross. There's the wisdom of this world which has no place and calls Christ crucified foolishness. And there's the wisdom which is from above, which focuses our attention upon him. So here we have then this approach and where we've reached. The full assurance of understanding. We can't possibly think of, we can't possibly think of having full assurance if our understanding is faulty. So we have now to look upon this word assurance. Here again I'll give you the word plero. You'll recognize that as the word complete or full. Uh, the word pleroma, the word that comes in this gospel, Christ, in whom dwells all the fullness, is the word pleroma. And here's a, a word associated with it. Pleroforia, Pharaoh, to carry. It means to completely carry you to your destination. That's the element of assurance. You yourself may not like to venture it, but this will take your hand and convey you safely. In its verbal form, you'll find it in Luke, the first chapter and the first verse. Let's look at that. This word, full assurance. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. There's an assurance. And if you'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5, you'll see it again in another context which may be useful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. Verse 4 says, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Now just recently there's been a little controversy arose about something with which with this is related. How did Paul know the election of the Thessalonians? 
Did God send an angel from heaven and say, look Paul, here's the book of the elect. Run your finger down there and see the names in Thessalonica in it. No. No. Paul did what you and I have to do. We have to listen to what a person says. We have to consider his manner of life and we come to a conclusion whether he's a believer or not. That's what we do. We're not deciding his fate. We're only saying that's the only way we can come to a conclusion. So he said, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes, and ye became followers of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Archaia. Well, if you can say that of anybody, you can say, with a certain amount of assurance, that person is a believer and is saved. But you're not saying that he's a believer and saved simply because he believes this or acknowledges that. They are merely external uh, indications to you. But I think they're there. Then if we look at Hebrews chapter 6, we may get another line on this. Hebrews chapter 6, Verse 10 and 11, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labour of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. There we have the word again, the full assurance. And here we have the same expression when we are told that Abraham after having received the most staggering promise from God, when he was as good as dead and so was his wife, he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. That's blessed assurance. Oh, I nearly said what I said downstairs. I said to the folks who come to the meeting downstairs, and they nearly all to do with banks and insurances, most of them, I said we ought to start this meeting every time by singing blessed insurance. Well, here's something even more than a blessed insurance. This is blessed assurance. All oh, friends, this is so needed. If you are ever going to stand for the truth and speak to others, you must be, like the Apostle says, uh, an instrument that gives a certain sound. If you don't know what you believe yourself, it's not very likely you'll convert somebody else. You mustn't be bombastic. There must be a humility about our speech. But there ought to be some things that we can stand with the Apostle Paul and say, I know. Or at least we could stand with Job and say, I know that my Redeemer liveth. That's where he brushed aside any amount of sophistry and philosophy that was being poured into his unwilling ears by his three friends. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Oh, if only we could get that. That's an assurance. Well, now there's another one. Over and, over and above the blessed assurance of knowing you're redeemed is to know some of these hidden things of God. Now that's where the mystery comes in. The mystery is a dispensation of something that was hidden by God but now revealed. So when you look at the bottom of this chart, in chapter 1, 26 to 27, we have hid and riches and Christ. Let's see. Colossians 1, that looks as though it's a similar to what we're looking at. I haven't made a mistake, I hope. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. Even the mystery, which hath been hid 
from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see those words? We've got them, wisdom. We've got, we've got the riches and the word Christ and the word hid. Then it's followed by a warning in verse 28. Warning every man. Well, then we come to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and we've got the same words, hid, and riches, and Christ. We've read them just now. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then we have warning again in chapter 2, 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, right on to chapter 3, verse 3, where we have, your life is hid with Christ in God. And so we've got three times an emphasis upon the word hid. The dispensation of the mystery was hid. These wonderful treasures are hid. And now he comes to you and to me and says, and your life is hid with Christ in God. One of the titles given to God's Old Testament saints were his hidden ones. Well, in a measure we could take that to ourselves because we are dealing much with that which is hidden, except God revealed it. So now we have the heart comforted, we have them knit together, we have this riches of the full assurance of understanding. What for? Where does this lead us? To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. Now there are some occasions when it's a little bit difficult to know whether you mean knowledge or whether you mean acknowledge. Will you turn back to Ephesians chapter 1? The same word is translated knowledge and acknowledge. And a little knowledge, oh, a little acknowledging of your own language is good. I suppose we've all at some time or another recited or sung the tedium. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. That's the modern version. But the man who wrote it didn't write it like that. As far as I know, Bishop Cranmer is the one who put it together. And he put the words, we knowledge thee to be the Lord, but that's not sense today. Who would say that was right? We knowledge thee. But you see, the point is this, that in the idea of God, and in the idea of our language, you cannot say you have knowledge if you have no acknowledging. The mere head stuffed with texts of scripture doesn't follow that they're wise people. I've said before in this meeting, we had one friend here years ago who had got a bit of a nuisance by chasing people about telling them how many times he'd read, say, the Gospel of Luke. Oh, hundreds of times. But he didn't make him a very wise and holy Christian. I don't say he was any the worse for it, but there it was. What's the good of that? But... The only thing that becomes real knowledge to you is when you not only see it for yourself, but you stand for it. And then it becomes to be a reality, you see. So, I don't think there's any need to argue the point. Does it mean knowledge or acknowledge? Well, if your head is full up with all the statements about heavenly places and you're very earthly in your walk, you can't say that you know that very intimately, you see. So, here we have in Ephesians 1 these words. Verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Our version says, in, 
the knowledge of him. But it also means for the acknowledgement of him. And it might even be by the acknowledgement of him. You say to somebody, or somebody says to you, how shall I ever get to this spirit of wisdom and revelation? How can I get it? Do I have to pray night and day and work myself up over it? No, you say, friend, no. There's a simple answer. You'll get the spirit of wisdom and revelation as the next step if you're willing to acknowledge where you've got so far. But if you won't acknowledge what God has already revealed to you, there'll be a shutter come down and you'll soon be saying, oh, I don't see it. You see, acknowledgement is so vital. Well, now I'll turn you to one or two passages where this word is actually translated acknowledge. In the um, first of Corinthians, chapter 16, here we have this very identical word, 16, verse 18. He speaks about Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archias. For that which was lacking on your part they have supplied, for they have refreshed my spirit in yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. Well, you can't really put anything else in that place, can you? And then in the second epistle to the Corinthians, the first chapter, we have it here several times, 13 and 14. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. And I trust ye shall acknowledge, even to the end, as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we also, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Acknowledge, acknowledge, acknowledge. Well, I don't think we need to go any further. There is evidence that this word has that deeper meaning. So now, full assurance, which is so needed, so enviable, so wished for, is linked with acknowledging. And I believe that's so true for us to, to, to keep in mind. Then shall you know, said the scripture, if you follow on to know the Lord. And you will know as well as I do the temptation there is to some of us. All you say, if I acknowledge that, oh, it's going to cause me a tremendous problem. It may be that There'll be a, a separation in your home. Oh, that's a desperate thing, isn't it? How many times have we seen a man and his wife put at variance because one sees the truth and the other doesn't? Well, he says, I think for the sake of peace, I won't say a word about it. Or you say, I can't tell you what to do, friends, but I can see trouble anywhere. And presently you meet a person who seemed to be beginning to enter into the wonder of this high calling? Oh, he says, oh, no, no, I've given it up. I see nothing in it. And you know why? He didn't dare acknowledge it. Because the circumstances of his life meant that he would be put, perhaps turned out of his meeting place or lose some office that he valued. And so he doesn't acknowledge and so he becomes hardened and he ceases. Oh, this is so vital, friend. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understandings. In all thy ways acknowledge him and your problems are settled. He shall direct thy 
Ret. R-E-C-T. Right. Thy D-I divide. He shall rightly divide thy paths. If you acknowledge him. So it's a, it's a great bearing upon this sorting out problem, isn't it? Now then, this is leading us then to the mystery of God. And as I say, the text that is apparently a very valuable and ancient one reads, the mystery of God and then stops and says, Christ. Well, you might say the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ. But it gets to Christ eventually. All that's an acknowledgement, friends. That all the mysteries there are, whether it be the dispensational mystery, whether it be the mystery of godliness, whether it be the mystery of Israel's blindness, whatever it is, there's a solution found for it in Christ. And I don't think found anywhere else. In who? I hid all the treasure, the whole treasury, not merely all the treasures, but the whole treasury of wisdom and knowledge. And immediately he follows and says, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you. I picked up volume 23 of the Berean, and I've quoted here a little piece from a piece of poetry, you may have heard it many times. Yea, through life, death, through sorrow and through sinning, he shall suffice me, for he hath sufficed. Christ is the end, for Christ was the beginning. Christ the beginning, for the end is Christ. Now that's just a poet to the man. But reason still, unless divinely taught, whatever she learn, learns nothing as she ought. The lamp of revelation only shows what human wisdom cannot but oppose. That man in nature's richest mantle clad, and graced with all philosophy can add, though fair without and luminous within, is still the progeny and heir of sin. Thus taught, down falls the plumage of his pride. He feels his need of an unerring guide, and knows that falling he shall rise no more, unless the power that bade him stand restore. This is indeed philosophy. This known makes wisdom worthy of the name his own. And without this, whatever he discuss, whether the space between the stars and us, whether he measure earth, compute the sea, weigh sunbeams, carve a fly or spit a flea, the solemn trifler with his boasted skill toils much and is a solemn trifler still. Blind was he born and his misguided eyes grown blind in trifling studies, blind he dies. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? And yet, how much there is of human wisdom focused upon spitting a flea. Don't think that's so wrong. It's got to be split. You know, spit it with a pin and examine it under a microscope. All to the good and wonderful. But here's wisdom. Here's wisdom that a treasure. Here's a wisdom which is found only in Christ. And may we be thankful that we have been given a glimpse of this hid treasure. The three hid things in Colossians are for our peace and our blessing. The hidden secret made known through Paul the prisoner. The hidden treasures found only in Christ. And then for our assurance, your life is hid with Christ.
in God. Well, we must take up our studies again as time goes on, and may we never be among those who are triflers or blind because we fail to acknowledge what God has shown.